Turn to two places in your Bible this morning. John chapter 19 and verse 31 is where we are. And then also after this reading we will turn to Psalm 22. So John 19 is the text. Psalm 22 will be the introduction in just a moment. Simply entitled the message, So That You Also May Believe. We'll see that again later on in the book, but we see it here in verse 36 or 35, uh, that, that you may believe. So look at the text, John 19, verse 31. <clears throat> you may not have thought on this phrase, but maybe this morning will help you think on it a bit. Since it was the day of preparation, the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, or a, I think the Greek word is great, a great day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place so that, or that the Scriptures might be fulfilled." Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Father, as you set Christ before our eyes this morning, placarded upon the cross for the whole world to see, may we understand again, maybe more completely, what substitution means. Understand Christ bearing our iniquities. Christ paying the debt that we could not pay. Help us to comprehend that in this gruesome scene of all of these physical things, nothing more weightier than Christ absorbing the fullness of your wrath in order that we may go free. Pondering the reality that He drank the cup that we would not have to drink. Let the saints marvel, take great joy in this work that has been done to free our souls. And may every lost man, woman, boy, or girl in this room today behold a Savior who loves them so and that they would repent and believe upon Christ and joyfully, delightfully, and gladly be baptized and tell their church that they're following Christ to your glory and for their good. We pray these things this morning 
by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Psalm 22 is my introduction. I don't have a story uh, per se or an illustration other than this text. Psalm 22, not read the whole chapter, but in Psalm 22, the same scene written for us hundreds of years earlier, and we'll read an excerpt of it, Psalm 22, beginning in verse 6. As we read this text, think about what you've been hearing about Christ on the cross and what you will hear about Christ on the cross this morning. It says in verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let let him rescue him, for, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from my mother's from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My mouth, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare, stare. And gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now back to John 19, 31 through 37. As we look at this text this morning, I don't want to overdo it, but I do want to say something about the Sabbath and this day of preparation. So, Sabbath day. Now, as we know, Old Testament-wise and pre-resurrection-wise, we're talking about Saturday. This is the Sabbath day was Saturday. And we know that the day of preparation then would be Friday. So Friday they prepare to observe the Sabbath day, which was Saturday. That's significant because it establishes that Jesus was crucified and killed on Friday. That's one day. Saturday, the Sabbath day, he's in the tomb. And Sunday, on the resurrection day, which is the third day, he is resurrected from the tomb. Any part of a day is considered the day, Jewish thought, thus three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. These Jews are very, very legalistic in my view, very religious, very legalistic to a fault. Hopefully we can correct that fault a little bit. But nevertheless, here, they do observe a day of preparation. Now, you... Most of you know I have a lot of views about the Sabbath, or as we would call it today, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, resurrection day, Sunday, the first day of the week. I have certain convictions I hold, maybe you have some you hold or you don't hold, those things are there, but 
Something we probably don't really consider much is preparation for the observance of the Lord's day. And the Jews did this, I think legalistically to a fault, but let us ponder it at least for a moment this morning. In the Bible, in several cases, these will sound repetitive, but just where so you know that they're in the Bible. Matthew 27, 62, the next day, that is the day of preparation. Mark 15, 42, since it was the day of preparation. That is the day before the Sabbath. Luke 23, 54, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. John 19, 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. And then John 19, 42, so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's get him in the tomb. Let's finish this work today because tomorrow is the Sabbath. We can't be toting bodies and burying people on that day. And so they had a preparation day to get everything done before the day. Now, as you know, we already said Friday was this day for them. Saturday was their Sabbath day. And just a little bit of a definition Everything, according to a Greek lexicon, everything had to be prepared before the Sabbath. Why? Under Jewish law, there's no work that's going to be permitted on the Sabbath day. Whether you agree or disagree, that's, we'll work that out later. But that's Jewish custom, according to the Old Testament. We can't do these things on the Sabbath, so you have to make preparations for all the things that are going to happen on the next day. Fine. It's the day on which the Jews made the necessary preparation in order to celebrate. Now, caution, we don't want to make this thing legalistic, but is there not a note here of something worthy of our time that there would be a day set apart that would be so special to you and to I that we would prepare for it? It doesn't have to be legalism. I think it has something to do with worth value, and joy. In other words, what is it that your heart loves? Don't make this complicated. Let's make it really simple. Find something that you really, really like. Let's just pick on the preacher. Okay, the preacher likes to ride a bicycle. I have no earthly idea why. He's nuts. He has no brains. I don't know, but he likes to ride a bicycle. If tomorrow's race day, if tomorrow you're going to do a race, then what's the logical thing you do? You prepare for race day. There's certain things you eat. There's certain things you don't eat. There's certain rest. There's certain preparations. All the chain, put some air in the tires. Make sure you got your stuff together. Clean your shoes. Whatever the case may be, it's just common, ordinary stuff that you would prepare for race day if you're going to race. Not complicated at all. Does anybody in the room like to go on a shopping spree? Anybody in the room like to go fishing or hunting? You understand preparation. Do I have my bullets? Do I have my license? Do I have a location? Is there gas in the car? Because we're going to get up at 5 in the morning to go to the deer stand. Is the deer stand ready? On and on we can go. We just make preparations for something we value. Every one of us does this. If you find something you like, you prepare for that day. None of that applies to you. What about vacation? 
You ever go on vacation? You ever want to get away? We got to get this ready. We got to get this ready. And we got to get this ready because tomorrow's vacation day. And we prepare for that day with a certain level of expectancy. Why? Because we desire that day. There's nothing wrong with that. Why would it not be equally so for believers to prepare for the Lord's day? Tomorrow, we're going to church. Tomorrow, we get to meet with the men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ. We get to read the Bible. We get to sing. We get to hear the word preached. We get to eat together and fellowship together. I want to prepare for that day. I want to go to bed earlier where I don't sleep through the whole sermon. I want to get all my stuff in order that I'm not distracted with the world that I can give my attention to Christ. Why is that complicated for us to be prepared for the Lord's day. Now, in the Old Testament, not to belabor this too much longer, but in Exodus 16, this is what they're working under is thoughts like this from Moses. In Exodus 16, 23, this is what the Lord has commanded, quote, tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till morning as Moses commanded them. It did not stink and there were no worms in it. God preserved these things. They prepared and they had provision for the next day. It's a great day, our text says. I think the ESV says it's a high day in verse 31. It's a very important day. It's the Sabbath of the Passover feast. It's a feast that's going to start and be a seven-day feast. This is a big event. They're preparing for it. If you want it in the words of A.W. Pink, A.W. Pink says it this way. It was on the eve of the regular weekly Sabbath and also the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, from which the Jews reckoned the seven weeks to Pentecost. The same day was also the one appointed for the presentation and offering the sheaf of new corn, according to Leviticus 23. You say all that to just simply say this. These Jews in this story know that tomorrow is an important Sabbath day and they're preparing for it. Now we'll get to the fact that they're a little out of line in just a moment, but they are preparing for the day, and we can learn from that. The message that we ought to see, maybe in all caps if we write it down with a computer, in all caps, is what? Here's the glaring problem, and this is where caution is used. These Jews have more regard for the day than they do for the Messiah of the day. They'll do everything to keep the day, while at the same time crucifying the Messiah of the day. That's where caution comes in. Don't make the day so high that it supersedes Christ. Don't become so legalistic that you start saying do's and don'ts to everybody around you and condemning everybody because they're not like you and make it all so legalistic that people can't enjoy Christ. May we never miss that the Lord's day, primarily above all other things, is for you and I to enjoy Christ. 
Now check off 75 boxes that we write down to be some legalistic knotheads here, but that we have come this day not out of some legalistic obligation, but we've come today because we love Christ, and in this moment, Christ is going to be the center of our attention. Not be like the Jews, crucifying the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, whatever you may do in regards to the fourth commandment, there could be a lot of different things that you could do and not do. Just make sure everyone in the room, examine your own heart. Don't worry about examining mine right now. Examine your own heart every week. What is your motive for the Lord's day? Do you come only because you feel required? You come because your parents make you come? You come because it's your tradition to come? You come because you know you'll feel bad if you don't come? Or is there in your heart some motive that's real and genuine? You come primarily because you love Christ. That's the issue. We need to have the right motive in order to worship Christ. Now, Poems take a lot of thought, and it takes a long time to process. If you want a copy of it later, I'll give it to you. But in regards to the Sabbath, this is the poem that I've written this week. And think, I'll, I'll try to read slow, and you can process it a little bit, but here it is. People prepare to rest, to set their minds on what is best. A day that is void of regular duty, given by God as a thing of beauty. A day to be enjoyed by all the saints, resting and worshiping without complaints. For those who refuse to give God His due, fame Fortune, self, and world they pursue. A world of stress, anxiety, weariness, and dissatisfaction. Their souls starve to death with all their fruitless action. But for those who seek to give God their best, they alone will enjoy God's rest. This rest is not given to those of legalistic familiarity, not to those, but only to those who come to worship Jesus primarily. And everyone knows the length of a day. So how can a man justify one hour a day? Prepare yourself for the Lord's day, but do not elevate what you do or do not do above the Lord of the day. You remember, it is the first day of the week, the Lord's day, Acts 2.1. You're on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, bring your offerings on the first day of the week. Acts 20, Paul was breaking bread on the first day of the week. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the resurrection scene primarily emphasizes the first day of the week. Of the week. If the Lord's Day is not a day of delight for your soul, ask yourself why. I mean, at least take and consider it, whatever your position may be. Why is it that coming to church is such an obligation? 
Why is it such an inconvenience? Why is it so difficult for you to make your way here? Why is it so difficult to set aside the world? Why is it so difficult to abstain from all the stuff that goes on out there? Why is it so hard to set apart a day to talk with your spouse and your kids and to read the Bible and to pray and to take a nap and to sing and to hear the Word of God preached? Why is it so difficult? Why is it an obligation or a, a, a tension for you? Ask, at least ask yourself, why am I not delighting that this day I'm freed from all of that and I can rest and have my soul fed good food? Why is it an obligation? Why is it difficult? Ask, and maybe the Lord would show you, you ought to repent of your hobbies. You ought to repent of your selfishness. You ought to repent of all your man-made obligations. And you ought to see the joy of spending time with the Lord. Look, it's not complicated. Think back to a time you fell in love. Was it complicated for you to sit down with a person you loved and enjoy their company? Surely you looked forward to such an event. You look forward. Back in the old day, we didn't have all this computerized junk. We had these phones that were landlines. They had a rotary dial. And when you fell in love with somebody, when the phone rang, you got happy. Because it might be them calling. You're like, it may be them. Love does that. Would it not be that way for the Lord's day? Do you mean today I get to go to church? Today I get to see my family? Today I get to hear the Word? Today I get to pray with others? Today I get to be with people who are not crazy? People who actually love the same Lord I love? Oh, I pray it'd be that way for you. And if it's not, ask the Lord why it's not in order that you could find the joy in His day. He's been generous, has He not? He could have took six and gave you one. He gave you six to do your business, and he gave one that you would give him the honor that he deserves. Secondly, a sovereign design. Let's move back into this now in our text, verse 31b through 35. Look there again at the text uh, right after the Sabbath was a great day. It says, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That or so that you also may believe. This execution is horrific. Now, you may not know this. I was not fully aware of this. But the normal Roman practice was to leave crucified men and women on the cross till they died and vultures would come and begin to eat the bodies. They're cruel, these Roman soldiers. They just leave them up there. That was kind of their practice. And so in this scene, providence is in the backdrop. They don't even understand providence, but providence is working here that Christ's body would be removed and placed in the tomb. But they typically just left them there, and their rotting bodies would hang there until the vultures lighted upon them, according to D.A. Carson. And you almost want to see this as an act of mercy, but I'm not so sure if it's an act of mercy or not. I can't tell because if I'm hanging on the cross, I'm not so sure that I want my legs to be broken by these Roman soldiers I can't pronounce the Latin term. I'm sure that I'm not even close. 
but it's cruafragium. That's my best shot at it. But what does cruafragium mean? It's done by the smashing of the legs with an iron mallet. So you're on the cross, and you have to pull yourself up or push with your legs a little bit to get air. And you take this iron mallet and just bash their legs and break the bones until they can't push up no more, and it speeds up death. And so in one sense, it's merciful because you finally go ahead and die, but you got to go through the process of having your legs smashed with an iron mallet in order to get the relief. I'm not sure if anything in this whole thing's good, but this is the order that is to be done. The Jews ask, and they come and they break the legs of the first. They break the legs of the second. Was there two different sets doing the breaking? Was it the same set? I have no idea. We just know they skipped the guy in the middle. They break the legs of the one on the right and upon the left. And you know this from history, but Deuteronomy 21, a man is not to be left on a tree all night. And so, cursed is everyone who's hung up on a tree. I can't figure out these Jews. I know they don't like Christ. I know they're very infuriated that there's a sign in three languages making an announcement to the whole world that this is the king of the Jews. And I'm, I'm to the point like, these people hate the sign. It's like, I don't want anybody making an absolute claim that I'm opposed to. And Pilate's put it up here on this sign to mock us. And it's like, almost like, I don't think they're trying to relieve Christ. I think they're tired of the sign and they're tired of Christ. So get him down, get the sign down, and we'll convince the whole world that this man was cursed by God and he's an enemy of the cross and a blasphemer. So that's what they do. They set out to get him off that cross. If he's off the cross, the sign is gone, we put him in the tomb, and now we can be rid of him. This is their position, these Jews, these religious Jews. Now, there's a little side note in here. I must say something about this, because this is an, uh, a problem in American Christianity. <clears throat> Maybe not intentionally, in the world of Christianity, evangelicalism. But it's almost as if the gospel's so watered down in our country that for you to receive Jesus makes your life easier. Receive your Jesus and your life will get better. Or the sense of put a little fish on your business card and your business will increase if you're a Christian businessman, right? So it's almost like come to Jesus and your marriage will get better. Come to Jesus and your job will get better. Come to Jesus and your pay will get better. Maybe not intentionally, but some people have thought this. And you know what they do? They come and they feel or receive that type of message. And when it doesn't work, they throw Jesus away and they say, I've been there, I've done that, I tried that, and it did not work. And so I'm going to do my own thing. Where did we ever get the idea that receiving Jesus would make life easier here? Now, receiving Jesus certainly delivers you from hell and gives you entrance into heaven and you're clothed with his righteousness and all of that is better, but that doesn't mean it's going to be better here. Actually, it might mean that things will get worse. You see, you say, well, how are you saying all that from this text? I'm saying it because there's a man beside Jesus who believed on Christ. He is told by Christ that today you will be with me in paradise, but he still gets his legs broke. 
He still has to suffer on the cross and have his legs broke before the world and die. Just because you receive Christ doesn't mean you get the red carpet treatment and everything works. Christianity is still a narrow road. It's still difficult. Why? Why is it? We live in a fallen world. We live amongst sinners. We live amongst people who hate God. How in the world is it going to be easy? That's why we have the Spirit of God who enables us and strengthens us to endure through the difficulty until we get home. So if you're a person who receives Christ, and you get your legs broke this week, or you have a car wreck this week, or you have a kid run off in rebellion this week, that's not a sign that you're not Christian. It may be a sign that you are. And you endure through those things, dying to self, in order that Christ would receive glory from your life. Now, they pierced his side, and blood and water came forth. Believe you me, you do not want to read all the ink that's been spilt on this issue. But let me gather a couple of things from a Puritan and then one contemporary scholar, just because I think this is at least somewhat close. Why does he mention blood and water came forth? I think there's a level of truth to this. Blood stands for the remission of sins. Water for regeneration. Blood for atonement. Water for purification. The two always go together. Matthew Henry. Our contemporary scholar, critical scholar, the blood of Jesus Christ has sacrificial and the blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrificial and redemptive death, is the basis of eternal life in the believer and purifies us from every sin. I don't think that's a hard stretch. We're going to identify blood being poured out. We do communion, we drink of the cup, we remember the blood that was spilt. Why? Blood is necessary for the remission of sins. We know Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, there is no remission. So let's highlight on the cross blood coming out. Let's also understand that water is usually usually used symbolically in Scripture, cleansing life and for the Spirit even. All of these things are necessary, and John highlights them on the death of Christ when the spear goes through his side, blood and water. These things are significant in Old Testament literature, and they're significant in the application for our Christianity for remission and cleansing before the Lord. I'm okay with that. And then 1 Corinthians 6.11, it reminds us something like this. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You're washed. You were sanctified. You're justified. Those terminologies seem very parallel to blood and water. But let's go a little further. Examine. Why does John record the piercing and pouring forth of blood and water. He's the only one who does. Why does he do so? Now, out of the 15,000 different thoughts that are out there, let me at least narrow it down to one or two maybe. It's very highly probable the docetics are already on the scene. Now, you don't know about docetism perhaps or the docetics, but they're there, and their problem is, is they don't believe Christ is truly a man. They don't believe he's truly human. They espouse that he only seemed to take on human form. 
they, they didn't believe Jesus really died. They, they think he only appeared to die. That's the docetic view. So here's a group coming against the church saying, well, he didn't really die. Here's John standing there at the scene as an eyewitness, and he says, I saw blood come out. I, I saw water come out. That don't happen with somebody who appears human. It certainly don't happen to a ghost. Blood and water only come out of human flesh. And he's specifically saying that to put a, a, a squelch on this docetic movement, and he takes it up again in 1 John uh, but you say, who in the world would believe something this crazy? Well, the Muslims would. Islam still holds the same understanding. In the Quran, in Surah chapter 4, quote, it says, They did not kill him, neither did they crucify him. It only seemed to be so. Islam's position in their own book. Do you know that according to F.F. F. Bruce, a commentator, Muhammad... His knowledge of Christianity was mediated through the docetic movement. That's why it says that in the Quran. So the Islam at large is still holding this same position that Christ did not truly die physically on the cross. That exempts them from heaven. It exempts them from a saving relationship with Christ. We understand this. John is writing these things intentionally to put before you God in human flesh dying a real death on a real cross, shedding real blood, spilling real water in order that those who believe can be cleansed of all of their sin and have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. It's a glorious work. But I'll give you even more than that. Those are just some thoughts for sure that are there. But I think here that John is making a theological statement. He's making a theological statement. You say, well, what's the theological statement? Well, I found it in the prologue. The prologue at the beginning of this book. And it's what he says in the beginning of the book. And the Word, the Lord Jesus, became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And he says, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only Father, begotten of God. He, that's the prologue, that's the introduction. When you have a prologue like that, you better have an epilogue. Prologue, epilogue. Here's the Word made flesh, we beheld His glory. Here's the epilogue, Father, I have glorified you at the climax of the cross, all glory to God, and John standing at the foot of the cross, having written back here in John 1, he goes, now here's the glory, Christ substituted for me. Christ paid for my sins. Oh, glory to God. What a Savior. Christ loves me. John sees that with his own eyes. And what's his response? I want every one of you, everyone in the world, I want you to believe Christ. Oh, that you would believe Christ right now today. Would you look at the cross and see that all the glory is there? God in human form paying your debt that you could go free. astounding gospel. Yes, the prologue has an epilogue. The Word became flesh. They pierced His side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. All glory to Christ, truly man and truly God. Then, after we examine this theological point, 
there's an exhortation. You find that exhortation there in verse 36. 35, sorry, 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth. So that you also may believe. Let me give you those phrases. I don't think they're much different, but let me give you this triple exhortation. A triple exhortation. And it sounds this way. And the one who saw testified. Now, just ponder and soak that in. When your eyes have seen something before you and you witnessed it, and you tell someone and they say that's not true, you say what? Were you there? Were you there? Well, no, I wasn't there. I was there. Well, I don't believe you. Whether you believe me or not, this is what I saw with my own eyes in the clarity of the day right before me on the cross. I saw the Son of God crucified. I I was there. I'm the one who saw it. You bring the whole world to argue, but I was there. That's what John is saying. And then he's like, that's not enough. He says again the second time, and his testimony is true. It's verdad. It's the truth. There's no lie. There's no mixture. There's no deception. I am speaking to you the very words of God. I saw it. I wrote it down, inspired by the Spirit of God. This is the only thing you can know for absolutely sure. It's truth. That's what John is saying. Thirdly, he says, and he knows that he speaks the truth. He's not bipolar. He's not delusional. He says he knows that what he's saying is true. He's very well aware of what he's saying. Upon his testimony is the epitome of the gospel for all of eternity laid out for the whole world. He does not make a mistake. And no one has ever been able to say with truth that John has lied in any form. It's true. But, but no, don't get caught up in the facts of the statement and of the clarity of the witness. Don't get caught up in that and miss the implications that are pressed on you. John wrote this so that you, so that you, so that you would believe. Think about it. If he doesn't write it down, what do you have? But John, by the Spirit of God, wrote it in plain form that's readable. Translated in every language around the world where the whole world could read it and say, Oh, this is what God did for me. The glory. Do you know, do you understand that God didn't have to reveal anything to you? But God, in His mercy and grace, unveiled these things so that you could believe in His Son. Thirdly, and lastly, the scriptural determination. We see this in verse 36 and verse 37. And he says, these things, all of this whole crucifixion scene, everything we've been preaching through these last months, they took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then, like he did with the other references, he follows this with an Old Testament reference. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, 
there's at least three choices on this first one, that not one of his bones will be broken. Moses has said in Exodus 12, 46, about this Passover meal, about the sacrifice of this lamb, it shall be eaten in one house, you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. That's what he told them. That's the way they observed the Passover. Sacrifice the lamb, don't break the bones. Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. Here they are with the Paschal Lamb, with the Lamb that God has provided right before the Passover. It's going to be sacrificed, but we are not going to break its bones. Even though they said, can we break the bones to kill? It's not going to happen because divine providence has set parameters upon this scene. I love what Pink says. He says, for 1,500 years, Israel had punctiliously observed this item in the Passover observance. They never broke the bones for 1,500 years. And Pink says, And none of them, so far as we know, had any idea what it meant until today. Son of God will not have one bone broken. He's the lamb that will be sacrificed, no bones to be broken. And then I give you the third option, Psalm, all of the, I say option, I think they're all true, but Psalm 34, 20, this is what David said. We heard Moses, now we hear David, David very quick and very, very precise. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Can I submit to you this morning, there's not any way on the face of the earth that the entire world could have got together and been able to break the bones of Jesus because God had prohibited it. Now, if you'll kindly turn to Psalm 34. It's another glorious thing about crockpots. You don't have to worry. Food's warm. We'll be there in a minute. You don't have to wait in line. You don't even have to pay. Psalm 34, verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So you see this wording of deliverance and help and assistance, and then you see how it's procured. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteousness will be condemned The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those, look at that, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And one person here will be condemned if you'll just take refuge in this one who was slaughtered on your behalf and his bones were not broken. Just believe him. You'll never be condemned ever in all of eternity. And then we deal with this uh, issue of Verse 37, and again, another scripture says, I gave an assignment on Wednesday. Several have commented uh, with what their answers are. So let me recount the situation. 
of verse 37, and this is the conclusion of the sermon. But, and again, another scripture says, so let us back up. In John 18, I'll just remind you of the text. In John 18 and verse 32, he said, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. And gives a reference there. Then you go to John 19, 24. This was to fulfill the scripture. I thirst was the quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 69, 21. Then you have uh, John 19, 28. And 19, oh, that was 19, 28, my bad, sorry. Uh, back up, I'm off course. 19, 24, 19, 24, I've skipped that one. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, divided my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. Then 28 that I just read, that, it's, that it may be fulfilled, that scripture may be fulfilled, I thirst. And then in 1936, that the scripture might be fulfilled. My point in this was, four times, John writes that the Scripture might be fulfilled, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And then we get to verse 37, and he drops the word fulfillment, and he says, and again another Scripture says. And the question was, why does he drop the word fulfillment when he gives this verse 37 and then follows it with an Old Testament quote? The Old Testament quote is Zechariah 12, verse 10, which says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Those things are partially fulfilled here, but not totally fulfilled here. Think about it. In John 18... This word that was fulfilled, he's going to die. In John 19, that second one we looked at, that they're going to divide his garments. The third one, I thirst. The fourth one is that not one of his bones will be broken. All four of those are fulfilled. There's nothing else you can do with them. There's nothing else that can be added. But when you get to verse 37, and he says, again, another scripture says, he says this because it's not completely fulfilled as of yet. There's coming a day that it will be fulfilled. John writes this. John also writes another book, does he not? He writes a book called Revelation. And you turn to Revelation and you look at chapter 1 and verse 7 and it says this. John says this later. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. That day's out here, and it's coming. Every eye's going to see him, and he says this, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth are going to wail on account of him. And then he says, even so, amen. (laughs) These other four have been fulfilled. This fifth one is coming on a future day when every eye will behold him who was pierced for
for our transgressions. And on that day, every person who rejected the gospel is going to well because of their foolishness. But all of the saints who have embraced him by faith are going to rejoice and say, Maranatha, my groom has come, and today I will be in the presence of my Lord. Is that day a day you're hastening and waiting for, or a day you're trying to ignore, or a day you're trying to repulse out of your mind? The perfections of God in writing these scriptures hundreds of years in advance ought to cause you to believe. God spoke exactly what would happen in advance because he knows the end from the beginning. And one day when Christ returns, I pray your view of him would be one of delight and joy and great love. Two very quick responses in conclusion. How should you, who are lost, respond to this truth? You see, who's lost? Those who will not repent, those who will not believe, and those who will not be baptized. You're lost. How do you respond? Look, I'm just a preacher, which in the eyes of the world doesn't amount to much. All I can do is communicate to you the truth of what the text says and trust that you will have to respond and do something with what God has said. And so God is saying through the preacher this morning, this message, and he's saying, what do you, how do you respond to this truth? Let me just give it to you in the words of Christ. This is what Jesus said. He says, Jesus came into Galilee, and he was proclaiming the gospel of God. This is what he said. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Right now. That's what Jesus preached. That's your response. Repent and believe today. There's many Christians in the room. How should we respond to this truth? Let me give it to you from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.16. Paul says it this way. This is what we should do. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. May it dwell in you richly. May it be profitable to you. May your soul be well fed. Teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. May this glorious truth of the substitution of Christ dwell in your hearts richly. May it consume your mind today. And may you be caught up in your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. May you glory in him this day. Let us pray as Brother Jeff closes us in song. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for his excellent, perfect, beautiful substitution. Thank you for John writing these things down as an eyewitness so that we may believe, that we may know Christ, that our souls may be satisfied, that we may be gloriously filled with everything we need for this life and the life to come. Lord, may we joy in your day, the Lord's day. May we glory in you for all that you've done. And for those that are outside of you, Lord, all I can do is pray that they had turned from the world, turned from their self, turned from their sin, and they would look unto the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We pray these things this morning. By your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen.